Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, having on the podcast Dr. Maria Kirgiu, who is a professor in gynecologic oncology in the Department of Surgery and Cancer at the Imperial College of London. The uh, topic of the discussion today is going to be a recent publication in Lancet Oncology, and it's titled Terminology for Cone Dimensions after local conservative treatment for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia and early invasive cervical cancer. 2022 consensus recommendations from ESGO, EFC, IFCPC, and ESP. Uh, Maria, thank you so, so much for accepting our invitation and, and uh, congratulations once again on this uh, very important publication. Um, and. Uh, Love to uh, discuss uh, a number of points on this uh, on this podcast. So once again, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for putting this together because it is important to get all these um, messages out to the public and to clinicians across the world. So thank you for organizing this. Of course, no, Maria. Uh, you know, certainly the, this uh, this manuscript came across, uh, um, and uh, there were a number. Uh, who reached out to us and said, a number of people who reached out to us and said, we definitely need to do a podcast about this manuscript. So I wanted to uh, start by asking you, uh, what, what do you think is important to standardize uh, terminology for cone dimensions and, and build a consensus regarding the terms that are used to describe them? Well, I think we wanted to do this for quite a while because um, different societies from pathology and from the surgical societies have been using slightly different terminologies. And uh, there, there was no communication, if you wish, between the societies on what is the best one to use. And um, it became quite obvious with the evidence that suggested that treatment for cervical precancer and early cervical cancer, which was thought to have minimal complications that were thought to be infrequent and minor, was actually associated with quite a significant risk of increased reproductive morbidity in a subsequent pregnancy. So I think the awareness that women that have this uh, treatment that removes the cone-shaped part of the cervix actually have an increased risk of premature birth in a subsequent pregnancy. And the fact that the mean age of getting cervical precancer is similar to the mean age of having your first child, this was quite relevant to a significant part of the population that attends for these treatments. And we were one of the first teams that recognized this risk with our first paper back in 2006 uh, in the Lancet that recognized this increased risk of prematurity. And work that we've done subsequent to that, uh, published in the BMJ and other journals and in the Cochrane Library, has actually shown that the length of the cone that you remove is associated with the severity and the frequency of the, of the prematurity. And um, a lot of people started trying to use this as a guide on how they should subsequently tailor antenatal surveillance for, for women, whether they should be offering uh, interventions, prophylactic interventions with serial cervical length scans, with circlas, with progesterone, with steroids. And at least in the UK, in, in many obstetric units, um, people use length of more or less than 10 millimeters to decide whether women will attend these high-risk obstetric units. Um, and it became more obvious that increasingly, not only we need a proper documentation to do better research in the future, but also uh, we need this documentation uh, so that we can use it to, to tailor 
interventions, not to over-intervene for people who do not need over-interventions in pregnancy, and equally to identify people at high risk and try to minimize the risk of, of, of premature birth. And given, obviously, that as a team, we've always been very um, connected to all of this evidence, we were the first to recognize that risk. We felt that this is a very important step because we need to bring all the societies together and be able to document this uh, properly in the future and allow us to create even better evidence base for, for patients. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, brilliant uh, because, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, it's, it's, um, it's an issue for, for many uh, clinicians, surgeons, as we see patients in consultation uh, with regards to how the, the specimen is, is evaluated, how it's interpreted, and, and ultimately, as you mentioned, you know, the, the implications on, on uh, fertility uh, in, uh, for, for many of these patients. Um, so I wanted to also ask you, in, in the manuscript, you discussed the importance of tailoring the cone length to the age of the patient and the lesions being treated. And I was wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more. Yes. So... Um... I guess what is quite interesting for the readers is to, to go back to the same journal of the Lancet Oncology and in the same uh, journal that was dedicated to women's health, there was also a second paper that we published in August, which is a network meta-analysis funded by NHR in the UK, which was looking at all the, uh, the different treatment modalities for cervical precancer and early cervical cancer, and also looking at uh, both the efficacy in terms of recurrence and also the risk of premature birth in, in, in these treatments and different cone lengths. So this paper came really together with the other one, and it's a very important addition to, to the literature. And what we were uh, sort of looking at in, in, in this paper was to see how we ultimately balance oncological morbidity and uh, reproductive morbidity in our patients. Um, and as we have been recognizing the risk of prematurity after treatment, um, people have slightly become, um, let's say, more conservative in the way they treat CIN um, with the awareness of the risk they've try to do less deep excisions, they try to use treatments that are not um, uh, going to cause complications uh, and remove less tissue. And there's been some evidence that there, there has been an increase in the post-treatment invasive cervical cancer rates. So I think we felt that it was very important to try to understand the literature to date and how you may be sometimes compromising clearance and recurrence rate uh, when you do a, a less aggressive form of treatment, but you may optimize the reproductive outcome for the patient. But although this is what the logic tells you, there was no evidence to support all of this and people were puzzled in clinic as to what to do. So um, until this paper in the Lancet Oncology this August, everybody felt that um, the treatments are all the same in terms of efficacy based on the Cochrane review that was published about 10, 15 years ago, which only analyzed 15 randomized trials with multiple comparisons. For various comparison, there were like two or three studies with, I don't know, the largest one having 500 patients. And clearly, all this analysis was underpowered to find differences in the efficacy of treatment techniques that are highly efficacious anyway. So what we did in this uh, network meta-analysis is that we developed new statistical methodologies that allow you to use both 
uh, randomized, but also observational data. Apply rigorous methodologies to ensure that you get good quality data out of this. And this is the first paper to actually show that uh, all treatment modalities are not the same in terms of recurrence rates. And uh, we try to make this very easy for the public to read and convert it, all these relative risks, which are quite hard to interpret for clinicians as well as patients to absolute risks and created a nice uh, plot that gives you those absolute risks. And you can see that um, recurrence, for example, for any treatment failure is 10% for loop excision leads or leap in the US. It's 6.6 for cold knife conization, 6.3 for laser cone. Um, so um, there is a difference in the efficacy uh, between treatments. And um, we can't just look at reproductive morbidity, but we should also look at the oncological outcomes. Mm. So coming back to the question, I think now that we have clear evidence uh, that the length of excision or the type of treatment you do can affect the risk of recurrence, it's important to not just do one model that fits all for every patient, but to try to adjust and tailor what you do to the woman's wishes, to her age, to her fertility wishes, uh, to the kind of lesion she has, to the type of transformation zone that she has. And um, this is a very important uh, element because now in some older women or women who've completed their families um, that may have a type two or three transformation zone, it may be that deeper excisions or treatments that remove more tissue are actually more appropriate than just doing the same medium loop excision to everybody, which is what people used to do back in the days I was a trainee. So we need to have this evidence, however, to be able to understand the quantification of the risk, to rank the treatments, to rank the cone lengths, and then be able to target the right patient for the right treatment. Yeah, and and um, you mentioned something obviously, and and you've been alluding to the the, the reproductive outcomes, and later I want to get into obviously some of the cancer related outcomes. Um, you know, recently I had this really in depth discussion with a patient who kept really asking me, "What's the length of the cone that you're going to remove?" And of course, obviously, you allude to the importance of the correlation of cone length with reproductive outcomes. And, and the, the patient was really fixated on like, well, is there a particular length that beyond that point, then I'm really going to be at, at a disadvantage be, be, because of reproductive outcomes. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like a, a, a discussion where, you know, you talk about the balance between ideally not getting positive margins, but at the same time, not taking too much. And I was just wondering if you can expand a little bit more on that. And, and how do you have those discussions with patients? Oh, she must, she must have been reading all the papers, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> I it, think she it was. Is, <laughs> it, is, it is very interesting because some patients do their own research and they, and they do read a lot about this. And as we know, you may intend to do a cone of X millimeters, but I'm not entirely sure whether you can always totally achieve what your intention was uh, with a human eye. So that's that's a very difficult one uh, to, to explain as well to patients pre-operation pre and say, you know, I'm going to take nine millimeters. How can you ever predict that you will take nine and not 12? Right. Um, and I guess it's difficult for patients as well because they, they probably saw 
our previous publications in, in the BMJ that were reporting and Cochrane Library on the relative risk um, of cutoffs that we used in the literature because that's what the papers were giving. So they used to give 10 or 12 or 15 or eight. And obviously you do an analysis on the basis of the cutoffs that is provided to you and um, by the author of each paper. And, and then you get obviously a result using that cutoff. It doesn't mean that this is the cutoff of, of, of risk. And then if you're one millimeter more, the risk starts and then it goes away. Um, but it is, it is what we have. I don't think patients should be um, trying to understand how many millimeters we do. I think the important thing is that their age, their lesion, their transformation zone, um, their wishes to have uh, babies, but at the same time, the ability to remove all of the lesions are equally important. And um, I think doing a bad treatment with leaving positive, and we know the margins are not everything, but leaving disease behind and then the patient ending up needing a, a repeat mm -hmm. comb in a year's time is mm -hmm. worse than doing one proper treatment at the beginning. So what I say to the patients is I have to do a proper treatment. And within that, treatment my aim would be not to remove tissue that I don't think you need to have removed but equally I'm not going to compromise your treatment because all you will end up doing is probably not having clearance and then having an, another treatment and then your risk will be actually much worse if you end up with two loop excisions as opposed to to one so um my message to the doctors and to the patients is that you you need to be aware of the risks. You also need to be aware of how not removing the disease increases the risk of recurrence. We know from uh, our paper with Mark Arb in Lancet Oncology a couple of years ago that the risk in positive margins is 17% versus 3%, 3.7, I think it was in, in negative margins. But we do have HPV DNA tests in our hands, and we know that it's a much more accurate test to predict treatment failure as opposed to uh, the margins. Um, but the message for me is clear. Uh, you, should, uh, you should tailor your treatment, and experience, of course, is important to get that balance, but you should do one proper treatment adjusted to the patient, not to compromise the treatment, but equally not to remove tissue just because you surgically can just whatever is needed but do it properly great and maria you know certainly obviously is the important contribution and value to to this manuscript you you captured gynecologic oncologists uh, colposcopy uh pathology to um to come to this consensus and and i was wondering you know certainly someone looking from the outside in might say you know, what's the issue? Why can't there be a current standard in terms of the measurement of, of cone dimensions? Why do you need to have uh, all of these organizations getting together and, and just agree on how to, how to proceed and move forward? Um, I think you, you would think that life should be easy, but it actually isn't because uh, sometimes the societies uh, work separately to each other. 
<laughs> so if you if you look at the appendix of the of the paper, we've one of the first things we've done was to go back and look at what has been published in this field and what do the pathologist societies use, what do the gynecological societies use. And whenever in, in medicine and research, I think uh, societies don't come together, people don't work together. Uh, clinicians may have a very different view and pathologists may have a different view because they, they manage very separate things. And until sometimes you bring all of these people to sit around the same table, it may not be easy to reach an agreement. So, um, for example, the IFCPC classification, which was one of the only ones published by gynecologists, um, was talking about length and thickness. And in some other documents, uh, the word thickness is used to define length. <laughs> um and uh unless you have a guidance people will continue to use different terminologies uh at least now the societies have agreed on on something that can be universally used and i think there were also other complexities when do you measure it before um <laughs> formalin after formalin mm -hmm. um when you've transfixed the tissue how much does that affect the length should the gynecologist be doing it in clinic? Um, are the people doing the measurements in the lab aware of the importance that these millimeters may have in the way you stratify the future risk of women? And until you publish this and make them available as guidance, uh, people uh, need to have that as an educational platform to even understand the importance of it, I guess. And this is what this was trying to do. Yeah, um, I want to ask you another question with regards to those measurements. You you speak about comb volume, and of course, obviously, we see manuscripts being published uh, documenting comb volume, but oftentimes to clinicians, they're like, "I don't really understand that," and like, I'd rather see like what's the length and what's the height or what's the width or what's the depth, but like volume is is not something that I can relate to. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yeah. what the emphasis on volume? I totally agree with you on this, and I think there is a lot out there, so it was important for us to include this in this paper because we, we had to include everything that may create, I guess, questions in the future. Um, when all of this awareness about prematurity and uh, colonization came into the picture in 2006, I think a lot of authors tried to look at ways to predict the future risk for different women. And there was a thinking that it may be that the length itself is not that important, but the volume, which is three-dimensional, if you get something short and then you end up removing still a very big part of the cervix. Then people talked about proportion of canal removed and proportion of volume removed as a, as a better measurement because women are obviously born with a different cervix and therefore removing the same amount of tissue in somebody who already has you know, genetically a short cervix may have different outcomes, et cetera. But I, uh, the answer to all of this is that it is important. It is interesting in a research setting, but I don't think any of this is currently uh, used in clinical practice. And I don't think we have any evidence to change our practice uh, uh, on the basis of volumes and a few papers that have been published on this uh, or on proportions, but certainly uh, the length is something that has had loads, loads of publications and, and until now, and we have very good data on how the risk goes up and down according to this. Um, 
I think it's still important to include them, uh, given that they're mentioned probably in more papers than, than the length is mentioned, if you see on terminology. Um, and I think people that want to do this for research can now have a universal way of measuring it. So then we can combine the evidence and it may be in five or 10 years time, we have better idea whether it's useful, but at the moment it's not for clinical use. Great, and then that brings me to, to the next question. Uh, after gathering all of this expertise um, in the main message, what should be the dimensions reported for a cone specimen today? Well, it's all nicely uh, in the figure of the of the manuscript and, and the paper, which uh, hopefully people can see. I think uh, what is quite uh, new is that we feel that uh, even gynecologists uh, and pathologists can do those measurements. Of course, it's not necessarily possible in all the clinical settings to, to do them. So they're optional for gynecologists, but it is reflecting best practice. Um, if it is recorded by the uh, gynecologist, that measurement should be used in preference. Um, and uh, many of us just record that as part of the treatment record at the, at the time uh, of, of, of doing the treatment for the patient and putting the letters so that they have it available to them in the next pregnancy. And for uh, recording, we have three terminologies of length, anterior, posterior dimension and transverse. And we have instructions on, on, on how to use this uh, for pathologists and clinicians. Yeah, and I have to say congratulations on such amazing graphics in this, uh, in this article. I really invite everyone to, to take a look at them. And, and actually also your tables are really fantastic. Um, which then also brings well, me to- We, we had great help. We had great help from ESCO, I have to say. Uh, this would not have happened without ESCO, but uh, yes. yeah. No, they're really, they're really very descriptive, very visual. I, I love them. Um, now you speak about the terms depth, thickness, height, and you say these are all should, should be abandoned and they should be replaced by the term length. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, it, it's exactly as I said in the, in the previous question that people use this different terminologies. And when you go back to the literature to understand what they've analyzed to correlate this with that, it's impossible sometimes to uh, understand what they mean by each terminology. So many papers use thickness to define length. So when we were trying to do all this, secondary research and meta-analysis and systematic reviews, we couldn't really understand in the manuscript what the authors were measuring. For example, in the IFCVC terminology, thickness means the distance from the edge of the cone to the canal. And in many papers, it was the cervix from the endocervix, mm. um, the proximal and the distal end. So it's, it's important to, uh, I guess, stop using all of this and everybody uses the same uh, because we know that this will give us better data to use for research in the future. Yeah, and, and I think also that it uh, goes on to, to my next question, which I think is probably the same principle. You allude same to the principle. fact that uh, longitudinal diameter, thickness, radius should all be abandoned and we should all be reporting anteroposterior dimensions. And uh, and I think yeah. it's for, for, for the same uh, purposes as well. Exactly. Um, now, there are circumstances that I think are challenging, and certainly uh, I wanted to ask you uh, about a few of those. You, can you suggest any tips on, on how to measure a non-oriented cone 
and uh, how to measure a fragmented cone? So um, uh, the the majority of the cones uh, have a cone shaped uh, shape, so you can sort of orient ideally. them <laughs> ideally. <laughs> Um, so you can orient them, I would think, but uh, you can tell, I guess, where is the exocervix as opposed to where it's the proximal end. Um, however, um, what we said is that uh, you can, some people, not in the UK, but some people use, from the sound of things in the meetings, we had stitches to orient that 12 o'clock, the cone. I guess in my mind for a uh, pre-invasive disease, this is less, less important because it doesn't really make any major difference which margin is which as you're not going to go back and um, treat on that basis as you do in invasive cancer. But um, So um, if the cone is in two pieces, like a top hat excision, we have suggested that we can measure both those uh, parts separately and then add the dimensions but if you get piecemeal excisions uh, in multiple pieces we uh, said you should just report them separately in no specific order if you can't make up what exactly is is the main sample and then just leave it at that without trying to add anything because it's it's sort of impossible to do that yeah and and uh, one of the next question actually comes from our fellows in the journal um, and the, the question is, according to the proposed terminology for cone dimensions, length is the distance uh, between the ectocervical and the endocervical margins. If both margins are clear, how do you suggest to record the measurement of the distance between the cancer cells or pre-invasive disease and the closest resection margin? The answer to that is that uh, for pre-invasive disease, we don't do that anyway. So for pre-invasive disease, we do not record uh, where the uh, pre-invasive disease is and the distance from the margin. This is not practiced. Uh, it's either clear margin or not clear, but the distance yeah. is not important. <clears throat> Um, it is recorded uh, in, in invasive cancer cases, but this particular paper did not have any aim to go into uh, how you report uh, distance of margins from an invasive cancer. Though those there are pathology guidelines which are very clear for pathologists, I, I don't think they really need input from gynecologists and colposcopists as to uh, how this is done. It's a very lab-based pathology issue, and I think they have very nice and clear guidance on, on how to do this. And this paper didn't really have as a name to go into established things in pathology where there is clarity about how you're supposed to be doing it. And mm -hmm. I think probably pathologists would be more appropriate to answer this question rather than me as a surgeon. But um, it was not part of this paper. This paper has as only aimed to uh, look at the measurements of the cone itself yeah, and yeah. and how these measurements should be recorded properly because they, they are used and they're going to be used more and more as patients become aware in the way we tailor their antenatal care. Yeah, and, and I think probably the, the, the next question uh, applies to, to the same principle. Um, and the next question also comes from our fellows is pertaining to 
the glandular um, disease, uh, endocervical tumors. And there has been information about the Silva classification of, uh, of adenocarcinomas. Um, how does it fit into the recommendations or is this something that was not addressed in this consensus? Not at all. So this, this had, uh, this had uh, nothing to do with how you manage invasive cancer diagnosis and margin clearance uh, and glandular disease. It, it, it never went into how you report cancers within the sample. It is all how you measure the cone itself rather than cancers within the sample. Yeah. And um, as a follow-up to that, uh, any differences in terms of how we should view uh, from the perspective of this consensus, a cold knife cone versus a leap? Um, the way you measure it, no, it should be the same. It's it's this, it's a cone-shaped part of the cervix that is, is removed, that you measure it with the same principles. Uh, whether this was cut with a, a knife or a diathermy uh, tip, it doesn't really make any difference uh, to how you measure it. Um, but as I told you, in the same journal, we published the network meta-analysis on efficacy and reproductive morbidity. And I think it's very interesting for people to read this paper because um, I think it will slightly change the way we, we practice. Um, uh, I don't know in the US, but at least in, in the UK, there was for many years the belief that all the treatments are the same, whether you do laser ablation or laser canization or loop excision or a cold knife, you have the same efficacy, they're all brilliant. And therefore everybody would probably do the easiest and low cost one, which was loop excision. It was always the same in, in every patient. And now we have the evidence that tells us that this is not actually the case. So when you look at recurrence rates, and we did apply a lot of controls to make sure that there is no selection bias, that you're not just getting worse results with the more aggressive treatments because you just had more disease and more severe and bigger lesions. Mm. So we've done loads of work. We worked with our colleagues statisticians in, in the University of Bern in Switzerland, and um, they are like people who pioneered NMAs uh, in observation on randomized data. And, and, um, you can see an almost 10% risk for treatment failure for loop excision and you see 6.3 for laser cone or 6.6 um, .6 for cold knife colonization and 16% for laser ablation. Mm. So they're not actually all the same. These are absolute risks, yeah? And mm. on the other side, you see the preterm birth is completely the opposite. So you get 16% from cold knife colonization, you get 10 from loop excision, you get eight from laser ablation. So the more you remove, you're better off with clearance of the disease but you increase the risk of reproductive morbidity but so some older patients when this is no longer an issue we tend to do NEDS in, in my at Imperial College we, or sweats in, in the US so we tend to take them to theatre and do it under under GA so we have the evidence now to practice what we thought was best i.e. to be more aggressive in type 3 transformations and lesions that go into canal older women because doing a proper treatment is, is is really important so that they don't come back and we know how difficult screening is in people who have had a previous treatment we know that these people are at high risk of getting cancer and other HPV related cancers and we know that it's more difficult to monitor them in the future 
So you need to do one good treatment and perhaps now we have the evidence to be more aggressive in those that need to be more, uh, have more tissue removed um, uh, and balance it in younger patients depending on the lesion. Great. And, and Maria, I want to be respectful of your time. So I just have two more questions. Um, one, one question is, you know, there are some who might say, well, yes, you might have a higher risk of recurrence if you get a smaller uh, sample, but overall in the whole scheme of like the survival of this patient, does it really matter because you can always attend to it with a repeat procedure? Um, any, any thoughts on, on that? Whether it matters if you end up having to do it again. Yes. Or if you get margins that are positive. Yes. In, in, in an attempt to trying to not impact reproductive outcomes, if somebody says, well, I'll just get a small cone. And if for some reason it recurs, I'll just go back and get more. And because ultimately the outcome for these patients is going to be okay. Well, um, as I mentioned in the previous question, the, the risk of recurrence for high-grade precancer in the last oncology paper we had with Mark Arbig is 17 or 18% if you're positive versus 3% if you're negative. So there is quite a significant difference in, in your risk. Um, so um, I think that it's not really okay to go back and do I think getting margins is is not necessarily though the the uh, the always possible or the target, but it is important that you try to remove all of the disease. We know that having the HPV test as a test of cure is very much better than the margins in predicting treatment failure, and we know that a substantial amount of patients will not actually develop recurrence despite the fact that their margins are positive, hmm. and all of this is very very clearly established. But you should never do a treatment with an intention to go back and do yet another treatment because if you look at our data in the BMJ in the past, repeat colonizations had like multiple risk uh, at the level of a trachelectomy um, in, in terms of, of, of premature birth. Um, I guess in, in my mind, a very, and slightly relevant to this paper, but a very important thing for the future would be uh, the possibility that these people would benefit from risk-reducing HPV vaccination at the time of mm. treatment as a way to minimize the risk of recurrence. And um, this may open a new avenue to uh, minimize the risk of getting this, this uh, in the future. So we, we're running an, an, an NHR-funded trial, the novel trial, which finished recruitment at the moment in the UK, that is addressing exactly this question about the value of risk-reducing antibody vaccination in those individuals. And we just published a meta-analysis in the BMJ showing that the evidence is not a very high quality, but there is a significant reduction in your risk uh, if you do get vaccination at the time of treatment. So um, what I'm trying to say is that we have other things in our hands um, for the future, but uh, at the moment, the message should be try to do one proper treatment without removing too much tissue that is not needed, but uh, try to do one not having to bring the patient back and they're HPV positive and they have some mild changes in the cells and then they come back six months later and they come back again and then eventually you keep bringing them back for years not really knowing what to do with them. So Maria one last question is uh, what, what is your prediction on the implementation of these guidelines uh, as you and the co-authors have suggested in this very important manuscript moving forward will we be seeing consistently 
these recommendations? Uh, I would hope so. Uh, I, I think that uh, it takes time and I think initiatives like this and the work that ESGO does and their websites are very important and also the journals themselves into, into making this uh, knowledge publicly available and disseminating the findings. It takes a few years from the moment that these things are produced to uh, all the societies being informed but I, I do hope that in the future, more and more we'll be seeing a universal way of reporting this and, and more uh, accuracy in the way we use this, well, not as the obstetricians to, um, to tailor antenatal management in the future for those women. Uh, and I, I hope that um, more and more it will be used and in the future, we will have more and more data as a result of this, as this will be properly documented and recorded in the notes, in the databases, and that will allow more research that will make us minimize interventions for those that do not need it and optimize the management for those that do need it. Fantastic. Maria Curzio, Imperial College of London. Thank you so, so much. This has been incredibly informative. Congratulations on your manuscript. Congratulations to all the co-authors as well. And uh, once again, uh, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you.